0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 172, Chain Gang. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shaped the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. We have a lot to talk about today, so I'm going to get right into it. While convict leasing as a system was abolished in Georgia in 1908, the chain gang era immediately followed and operated through the late 1940s. Chain gangs installed water and sewer systems, smoothed and paved every single road you drive, bike, run, or walk on today. And when I say every single road, that is not exaggeration. This week, we're covering the history of the chain gang, the Fulton County chain gang, the projects they worked on, the men and women they chained, beat, and killed and the lasting legacy it left for us today. If you're unfamiliar with the convict lease system, I recommend you go back and listen to episodes 114 uh, and 106. I also talked about convict camps in the almshouse episode. So this information sets the stage for things I'm going to talk about today. But what surprised me the most when I started this research on the chain gang is that it completely overlapped with convict leasing. The use of chain gangs is intricately tied to the need for passable roads, and so I want to start by explaining how public roads were improved before this idea of using prisoners came to be. Going all the way back to feudal Europe, a corvée was a day of unpaid labor owed by a vassal to his feudal lord. So it also became the word for a forced labor exacted in lieu of taxes, particularly for road work. And so unlike other forms of taxes, a corvée did not require you to have land, crops, or cash. And so in America, this translates to being forced to work on public roads for several days each year, unpaid. And this method waned after the Revolutionary War, but it continued in the South until after the Civil War. People here were still forced to do this public labor or pay a fee to avoid it. And unsurprisingly, it wasn't really effective, mainly due to the poor quality of work. I mean, if you force me to do hard manual labor once a year in something that I seem to have no vested interest in, I probably am not going to give you my best efforts. This is kind of what happens when we force our teenage son to mow the lawn. He doesn't exactly give us his best work. This idea of using prison labor for road work was a novel concept. It was considered reform and progress, and in the era of convict leasing, it was touted how much better fresh air and sunshine was than being, let's say, in the mines or in the brickyards. The Good Roads movement really led the charge here. So in the Progressive Era, there was a big disconnect between agrarian parts of the country and cities. So as things are booming in rural areas, we needed passable roads to connect everything together. And then the prevailing prejudice at this time was that Black people were suited for heavy unskilled labor. Um, The Southern climate was thought of as ideal to use prisoners on the roads, because like in the Northeast, it would be, you know, below freezing. Um, In the winter, it wasn't seen as, as acceptable. Across the country, they believed that black people did not feel ashamed or quote-unquote morally injured by working outside, chained together. And then in farming areas, arresting people, arresting black people for petty crimes was a 100% way of control. There was also critiques from whites about how black people spent their money, so you would, and this is again in the post-slavery era, you would hire them, you would pay them, and then they don't come back the next day. And so forced labor was looked upon as this way to keep a convict in place, sleeping at night, and therefore, oh, we're helping them save. I could go on and on. The literature I read in this research was really problematic, really difficult, but I will leave you with a direct quote that illustrated everyone knew what this was. Nobody was confused. This was still slavery. It was still convict leasing. It just had a new title. Quote, you take the average built free man and put him on the public roads and work him hard 10 hours a day and he will strike for higher wages. The convict is forced to do regular work and that regular work results in the upbuilding of the convict, the upbuilding of the public roads and the upbuilding of the state. The convict is as much the property of the state as the slave before the way was a property of the slave owner, end quote. North Carolina is credited as the first state to use prisoners for public road work back in 1867, so two years after the end of the Civil War. And then almost about a decade later, Atlanta follows suit. So in 1876, Judge Daniel Pittman formally authorized an act that allowed the county ordinary to levy a tax for road work. It also allowed convicts that had been sentenced by Fulton County and the city of Atlanta to perform that work. So previously, all prisoner sentenced in Atlanta City Court were sent out to a man named George Kreis, or Kreis, um, who had his own chain gang, or he was the keeper of the chain gang, and they would repair streets. So this act formalized the whole process. It was looping in the county, and it was making it where all of them would go to this county ordinary. Now, because of his experience, this George guy was elected superintendent. The first Fulton County chain gang had 50 men who were shackled together at their ankles and the rear of their belts, and this position was so that it did not interfere with shoveling and digging. The first road worked on was Peachtree Street, just north of the streetcar split at Ponce de Leon. So this is basically right where the Fox Theater is today. Making Peachtree Street go past this was extensive. There were hills that were cut down, there were ravines that were filled um, to make it you know, what you see today. There were written descriptions of how bad Fulton County roads were post-Civil War, and then by 1878, they were described as, quote, the best, most pleasurable roads, end quote, all thanks to Judge Pittman. But really, all thanks to these 50 black men and six black women on the chain gang. Most of their offenses were unshockingly trivial, like stealing chickens. They were housed in tents along the route, and then they would work from sunup to sundown and sleep at night on site. They also paved McDonough Road out to Lakewood and laid all of the groundwork for the city's first waterworks there. In the same year, 1878, there were 6,000 residents in Fulton County, and the idea was to charge a $1 annual road tax. So full wagons, like if you had a farm, let's say in rural Fulton County, you could not safely travel over the roads with a full wagon. So this was seen as a help to farmers and merchants. Fulton also entered into agreement with Bardo County to receive their convicts for free. Uh, Only requirements was that they provide food and clothing. In 1879, Representative Hulsey introduced a bill to use convicts for roads in the city of Atlanta, formally dividing control between city and county. And Judge Bittman was like, absolutely not. He was outraged over the idea of chained men working in front of people in the middle of society. So this had nothing to do with the people in the chain gang. Um, I... To be honest, I think this was more of a county control issue, but he's like, what have they escaped? You know, what happens? And apparently there had been an incident a few years prior where there was a chain gang working near City Hall and someone escaped and was shot down. And the most, I guess, alarming part of the story was that it scared a white woman. So we cannot have any of that happening in the city. A new legislative bill in 1882 appointed an assistant keeper of convicts, as well as a whipping boss stationed at each camp. By 1887, there were 13 miles of paved roads in Fulton County let's talk about these camps. Um, at any given time, Fulton County operated between four and seven convict camps. They were named geographically like West, East, Sandy Springs, Roseland, River. Um, later we had Utoy and Bellwood. There was a McPherson. I did not have the time or capacity to figure out exactly where all of these camps were. I, if I do know, I will share. I mostly talk about Bellwood. And then as Atlanta grows, of course, these locations are like changed and debated. Um, There was an article from 1892. I think it was the West Peachtree Camp, you know, that at this point, the land was really valuable and it should be sold and relocated. By 1901, there were four camps at that time, and the headquarters were in Bellwood. So I talked about this in the Westside Park episode, but I do want to clarify that the Bellwood camp was the precursor to the Bellwood prison and the precursor to Fulton County Jail. And so the site that the jail is on today is where this camp stood. There were 221 convicts in the chain gang system at this time, and 25 out of 137 Georgia counties used convicts for road work. So listen to these statistics. Those 25 counties only had 21% of the roads in the state, but 90% of them were paved and 75% were graded. This is also the time when the city versus county drama returns, as Atlanta is kind of seeing this county success, or this even statewide success, they would like their own. And so in 1903, the city of Atlanta has 300 prisoners, but we don't have enough equipment. And so Fulton County is like, hey, not not our problem. Um, We needed more mules, and we needed more heavy machinery, and Fulton was not going to give us the extra stuff that we needed. In 1904, another state law was passed that allowed Fulton County to receive short-term felony prisoners to use for road work. So previously, they were only allowed to use those with misdemeanor sentences. And while I don't have Atlanta arrest records from this time, there was a paper that profiled Macon in 1904, very similar. So Macon had processed 56 convictions for drunkenness, 40 for disorderly conduct, 18 for fighting, and 12 for loitering. So yes, exact same issues and complaints from the convict lease system that black people are being targeted with arrests for petty crimes. Fulton County put these new convicts to work on Roswell Road, which was this new 12 mile stretch that was going to connect Buckhead to Roswell. This was also just a few years away from the end of the convict lease system, which I'll get to. So we see a lot of transfers. They had transferred 69 people from the Dade Coal Mines to the county, and 37 from Chattahoochee Brick were sent to Bolton County. In 1908, a special session of the Georgia General Assembly passed two major penal reforms. It was the Parole Act and the Abolishment of Convict Leasing. So the implications of the Parole Act are like another episode. It was crushing for black women in the system, Um, essentially it forced them into domestic service to like serve out their parole. Really insane history. I need to, again, make another episode for that. Um, now black women who were arrested though were continuously sent to the chain gang. And there are statistics here. So between 1908 and 1938, over 2000 black women labored on roads in comparison to only four white women in the state of Georgia. So when convict leasing ends in 1908, that means that 5,000 felony and misdemeanor convicts, 91% of which are black, are now available for state roads. And again, statistics don't lie. So in 1904, we have 2.85% of Georgia's 57,000 roads were surfaced with gravel, stone, or clay. One year... After convict leasing ends, it's 7.2%, 1914 is 15%, and then by 1915, Georgia had 13,000 miles of surfaced rural roads, which was more than any other southern state and the fifth most state in the U.S., The stories from these camps are really difficult to hear and I'm going to cover a few of these stories here. So in 1911, Roscoe Stansbury was a 20-year-old white kid from the West End. He was charged with forgery. He did 12 checks totaling $7.50. And he is sentenced to four years on the public's work detail. So he's sent to the Utoy camp. Again, he's a white man, so there was a lot of outrage in the papers. Um, His mother filed an appeal. She went to visit him every day in jail until he was sent to work. And then while working near Cascade Avenue... Stansberry hears the whistle of the Atlanta Birmingham and Atlantic Railroad, he drops his shovel, and he tries to escape. And the prison guard, B.A. Thompson, raised his rifle, shot him in the back, and killed him instantly. In June of 1913, John Burt filed a $10,000 lawsuit against the Bellwood Camp warden Oscar Jones. Burt claimed that he was lashed 72 times, beaten and kicked until sent to the hospital, He was serving a 12-month sentence for burglary, and he was beaten because he was cursing. So Bert also claimed that when he entered the camp, he weighed a healthy 180 pounds, and he was able to make $50 a month. But now he had lost 40 pounds, and he could only make a quarter of that. And so this is something to talk about, too. Um, One of the differences between convict leasing and state-run work was that convicts were quote-unquote paid, I use that term very loosely, but this is their distinction. So people are like, oh, you know, they're not working for free for private individuals. They're being paid pennies to work for the state. So much better. Um, But so for many prisoners, mistreatment and malnourishment really impacted their ability to make money. But then in an era of reform, which is really the the 19-teens, a lot of this happened, you'll see that many of these legal cases actually are able to go through because of this um, making money factor. In July of 1913, Charlie Stevens, a 20-year-old black man, was killed by sunstroke while working at the Bellwood Quarry on a 96-degree Atlanta summer day. Sentenced on the charge of gaming, his options were a $45 fine or eight months on the chain gang. He began his sentence at Bellwood on June 6, and he died just a month later. So this catalyzed the Men in Religion Forward movement. They publicized the story. They ran a bulletin on it. Again, I'm not going to go into that group in this episode. I have a mini coming up for them. Um, But this, again, led this time of reform. In the fall of 1913, Henry Shivers, who was a black man formerly incarcerated at Bellwood, he, he had gotten out and he filed charges against Oscar Jones, who was the whipping boss. And so, Shivers was sent to the camp in December of 1912. In March of 1913, apparently he smoked a cigarette after dinner, which he did not know was against the rules, and he was beaten with a club for 20 minutes in front of the entire mess hall. And similar to the previous case, the legal basis was that his earning capacity was diminished. In October of 1914, Will Johnson was killed when he fell off the back of a convict truck at the corner of Jefferson and Ashby Streets. So the truck was carrying 30 bales of hay and they put six men fastened to the top with a squad chain. And so as the truck takes a rough turn, Johnson is thrown from the vehicle and he is run over. In 1920, the Atlanta Humane Society adopted resolutions to fight against these cruel conditions. And so they actually used a letter from an inmate named Dick Jester, who was imprisoned at the Oakland City camp. And there was a law on the books that said you could only use 10 lashes. And this prisoner is like, that is either not true or definitely not being followed. Um, he said that one time five guards seized him and the corrections officer whipped him 26 times over his kidneys. So the Humane Society was actually able to start a petition and they were able to eventually abolish the whippings at the con- at the county convict camps. There are lots of um, muckraking accounts, a lot of books from the 20s, 30s, and 40s about the chain gang, especially in Georgia. All of them say the same thing the conditions were horrific everything they do, you're chained together. Food is rotten. Bedding is unclean. They were beaten. There was no medical treatment. There was no bathing. Um, There's an article from 1932 where I.P. Reynolds from the Atlanta Daily World, he went out to the quarry and, you know, he sees men and women in the hot sun with no shelter. And he's just like, somebody, somebody's got to look into this. In 1938, Governor E.D. Rivers banned the term chain gang for the more acceptable public works camp. He ended the use of shackles and chains and sweatboxes. Sweatboxes were exactly as they sound. There's an account from a camp in Dade County that said a warden put 22 black men in a 7-foot square box, covered it with tar paper, for 11 Hours. There was one pipe in the center that each person took turns accessing air from. In 1937, there was something called the Dreadstocks. They were banned, um, but it was still legal to use restricted diet, limited visitation, um, shackles, striped clothing, and solitary confinement as punishment. And so although Rivers named it something new, the chain gang continued to exist until Governor Arnold abolished it in 1943. In 1958, Fulton County began accepting bids on a new prison to be built on the site of the Bellwood Camp and replace the aging Fulton Tower downtown. This would allow the county to go from housing 794 prisoners to over 2,000. So, of course, we all know that the formal abolishment of the chain gang did not stop the use of prisoners on road projects because there was articles from all the way into 1975 about some crews paving Herds Ferry Road. And today, prisons across America use inmates to farm fish, make goods. And I encourage you to read about that and learn and google and everything because there are so many products made with prison labor and guess what it's just a continuation of convict leasing and the chain gang so there you have it the story of the chain gang in atlanta and fulton county thank you everyone for listening remember to leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to the podcast hope everyone has a great weekend and i'll talk to you next week